Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse number 10, all of mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Let's pray. Father, we gather together, many of which here are truly part of your church. There may be some in our midst who have yet to be converted, who have yet to come to you and to believe in you and place faith in you, Lord. But today could be the day for that. But for those of us that are here that are part of your church, would you encourage us in your word and feed us from your word as we see you, Jesus, fulfilling your role as the great intercessor, our great high priest, ever living to make intercession for us. And we get a glimpse of that here and we're thankful for that. So in your name we pray, amen. Um, Robert uh, Murray McShane, and if you're not familiar with that, if you're not familiar with that name, that's okay. Um, what that means is you're not a theology nerd like some of us in the room that are familiar with that name. But Robert uh, Murray McShane was a uh, he was a, a theologian and a pastor and an author that was um, lived in Scotland in the mid like like 1817 to 1830 something. I mean, sadly he died, so it'd be a little longer than that. Sadly he died when he was 29 years old, but he. In those short 29 years, he pastored a church and wrote a ton of books or of several books and just did a, had, a, had a beautiful journal that we still have and was kept for us. And Robert Murray McShane, he said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And that's what we have in this text of scripture. That when we read John 17, what we see here is we see Jesus praying for us, his church. Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples and he is praying for us as his church. That when we get into uh, Matthew, when we look at Matthew, like the sixth chapter, there's that section that we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Like many of you, you know that, and we call that the Lord's Prayer. But this, that is not, in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, that's not Jesus praying. That's Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. And we know that because Jesus in that, Jesus prays things that he doesn't need to pray or shouldn't pray. I mean, Jesus prays in there, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In that he's asking for forgiveness of sin and Jesus is the sinless substitute, the sinless savior. So Jesus never needed to pray to the father, father, forgive me of any debt because Jesus had no debt. He had no transgression. It's not talking about debt like we owe financially. He's talking about sin there. 
And so Jesus isn't praying there, but he's teaching his disciples to pray. But here in John 17, we see Jesus praying and we see how Jesus prays. And this gives us a glimpse of Jesus's uh, future in John 17 and his present ministry. Where is Jesus right now? Jesus is in heaven on a throne where he's reigning and ruling and interceding for his church. That is where he is right now. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus ever lives. He lives eternally to intercede for us. And what we have in this section of John 17 is John last, John Martin last week covered the first part. Now in the second part, in this little slice, what we see in this text is Jesus's prayer is directed toward the Father, but he is praying for the subject of his prayer is a particular people. We see it in the text. I'm not praying for the world. I am praying for a particular people, a people that have been called out, taken out of this world. Now, certainly Jesus is referring to, specifically to his 11 disciples, but this prayer also gives us a pattern of ministry. It's a pattern for Jesus's future work. It's a pattern of the work of the spirit that Jesus's prayer, it extends to us. It is applicable to us that the church, we are that particular people. We are a particular people who have been called out of the world, that that's even what the word church means. That the word church, when it's used in the Bible, it's the word ecclesia. It never refers to a place. Oftentimes we refer to church as a place. Hey, I'm going to church this morning. We drive by and go, oh, there's the church, right? We refer to it as a place. But in the Bible, it's never referred to as a place. It's always referred to as a people, the people of God, the people who belong to Jesus. The word ecclesia means to be called out. And that is what Jesus has done. He has called the church out of the world. He's taken them out of the world not, not physically, but spiritually, he's taking them out of the world and yet he's left them in the world, but yet they are another word when it used ecclesia, can be translated, it's the assembly. It's an assembly of people. It's called together. The word church is always plural. We live in a very individualistic society, but when we see the word church, it is a, it's a us, it's a we. It's not just a, a you, it's a us and a we. It's plural in the Bible that you and I, we have been called out of the world. We have been called to Jesus to the or by the Father, and we have been called together to each other. The foundation of the church is these 11 men. It's the apostles. The cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ himself. And you and I, we are the blocks. We are the bricks. We are an expression of Jesus's universal church, his people. So as we look at this text, we're gonna use the word the church. Normally I would say you, but I wanna make sure that we all understand that it's us universally. We're called to each other. We're even gonna see this throughout as we unpack this text, that the church, and three things I want us to look at this morning from this text. Number one, the church eternally belongs to God. So if you wanna take notes, this would be a good place to write something, something down. You can write this down. Number one, what we see in this text is that the church eternally belongs to God. Number two, the church rightly responds to the revelation of God. Number three, the church remains in the world to glorify Jesus. So I didn't make that up. That's not a 
something I've come up with. We're taking that straight out of the text. So two things I wanna do this morning, especially when you get out in a, in, a, in a little bit of a difficult to understand passage is not only do I want to try to help you to understand what it means, but I wanna try to help you also teach you how to study God's word so that when you're at home and you're at your kitchen table or you're at your workplace or wherever it is that you may study your Bible, read your Bible, that you can study it for yourself and you can see what and come to understand what it means. And so these things we extract, that's the type of preaching we do here is we exposit a text of scripture that not only do we preach from the Bible, but we preach the Bible. So we're preaching the Bible here. Where do we get this information from? Straight out of the text. And so we're just gonna walk through this text. Look at verse number six with me. He says, Jesus says, number one, the point number one was the church belongs to God. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. Now notice that, yours they were. The word were, is that future tense, present tense, past tense? Which one? It's past tense, right? They were yours, past tense, he says, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word, he says. Verse number five, nine, jump down to nine. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now that's present tense. Past tense, they were yours and now presently they're still yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified on, I am glorified in them. I know it's uh, um, Toy Story 4 just came out. And so maybe this was feeding those thought, but I was thinking about uh, the, the Woody doll and on the bottom of Woody's foot is, is what? What is it? Andy. Why is Andy right, on the bottom of Woody's foot? Because Woody belongs to Andy. He belongs to him. Woody owns him. There's belonging there. And in the same way, if you are part of the church, as corny as it can be, but if you're part of the church, if you could look down on your foot, it would say, God, you belong to God. That's what he's saying here, that we belonged to the Father, that we've been given to the Son, and now we belong to him. How did this come to be? How did we come to belong to God? Is this true of everyone? No, because we see this here. You've been taking out of the world. Then whenever the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about about the cosmos. That's the word being used there. Jesus already used it uh, throughout the the, uh, upper room discourse. He's already used that word over and over again, world. And it's it's the word cosmos, right? It's an ordered story structured system. It's a system of evil. It's a system under the fall. It's a system that is actually belongs to the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. That's what cosmos is. The opposite of a cosmos is chaos. It's not chaotic, even though the world feels very chaotic, but the truth is it's very ordered. It's an ordered operated system of evil. It come into being after the fall. After the fall, that's when the world existed. That's when the world came into to being not this creation, but this, this fallen part of the world. And what here what Jesus is saying is even though while you were part of this world, even though when you were a willing participant in the world, you nevertheless, you belong to the Father. It's the same thing Paul says in Ephesians, the second chapter. We read from Ephesians, the second chapter already this morning, but 
um, the chapter begins with this, and you were dead in the trespasses of your sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That's the word. That's the same thing Jesus is praying. You once followed the course, the pattern of this world. You sinned like everyone else was sinning. You were involved in that. Volitionally, willfully, you were, fo- you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, he says, uh, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then verse number four, but God, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ for it's by grace you have been saved. That's a Paul picking up and teaching us doctrinally what Jesus is praying for right here. Within the realm of darkness and sin and the consequences of the fall, there are some sinners who belong to God. That's what Jesus is praying. They were yours, Jesus prayed. They belong to you. So before they were ever converted, before they were ever called out, before they ever knew anything, before they ever believed anything, they belong to the Father. That's quite a statement. They were in the world and you gave them to Jesus out of the world and they've always belonged to you, the Father even when they were in the world. And now he's sending them back into the world. This isn't an isolated verse or a concept. In fact, as we read the book of Acts, we see this unfolding. Jesus is praying it here. And then it comes into fruition as we read the book of Acts. We see it and we see it present day as well, but we can clearly see it throughout the book of Acts. A couple of different places, one of which I'll read, but Acts 13 would be one place. But in Acts 18, Paul is in the midst of his second missionary journey. If you know anything about the life and ministry of Paul, I don't really know what the prosperity gospel guys do with, the, with, the, with Paul. I mean, if there's anybody that would have God's favor on them and it'd be manifested through material things, it would certainly be Paul. But nevertheless, every city that Paul goes in, he goes and he preaches and teaches, and then he gets the pudding beat out of him for preaching and teaching and proclaiming Christ. Every city he goes to, some become saved, but nevertheless, what he sees is he sees fruit and believers and then the powers that are to be, that again, this world, this system of evil chaos comes after Paul and persecutes Paul. And in the midst of his second missionary journey, Paul ends up in the city of Corinth. And when he gets to the city of Corinth, Corinth is a very pagan city. I mean, it's, it's a broken city. If you could, it's like the Las Vegas of the ancient world, right? It's a, it's a horrible city. Paul lands in Corinth and Paul is just, he's out of gas. He's completely gassed. He writes about this when he writes back to uh, the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. He tells them, he says, when I, when I came to you, I was, um, hang on, I read it, I read it. I was uh, in weakness and I was in fear and I was in much trembling. When we take us to believe that Paul maybe was thinking about quitting, he was tired, he was burnt out. Like he'd been shipwrecked and gotten beat up and all of these things had happened to him when he arrives in the city of Corinth. That's the way he feels with much trembling. And Paul goes asleep one night. And as he's sleeping, the Lord gives him a vision and speaks to him. And this is what he says. This is Acts 18 verses nine and 10. Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. And no one 
will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul's yet to really preach in Corinth. Corinth is a dark city, a pagan city, a worldly city. And what the Lord is telling Paul in the midst of that city, there are many people here, people who have yet to respond to the preaching of the gospel, but they will respond. They will come to me as you preach to them. They will respond. And so Paul, right, have no fear. Be assured that I am with you and continue to preach. Jesus has already taught similar things to this in the gospel of John. In John chapter six, verses 37, Jesus says this, all that the father gives me, same thing he's praying for there. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. That's the same thing, I'm, I'm holding them. This is my church, this is my people that I'm holding. All that the Father has given to me, Jesus says, I will hold on to, I will keep them. And anyone who comes to me, I'm not gonna cast that person out. Again, he said this in John chapter 10, and I'm building this foundation so that when we look at the benefits in just a second, and as we apply this, we know that it will apply to our lives. But in John chapter 10, verse number 27, here where Jesus talks about him being the good shepherd, he says, verse number 27, my sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why does he say that? Because of verse 29, my father who has given them to me, he is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Now, let me talk to you for just a second about what are the benefits of belonging to God? This is the application of this truth. What's the benefits of knowing that you belong to God? Well, first of all, let me just say this. There is within us an innate desire to belong. I mean, just look at society, look at your own heart, the trajectory of your own heart. And there is within us, no matter how introverted you may be, there is nevertheless inside of you a desire to belong. Now you may be want to be in control with to whom you belong to and how many people you belong to, but there is, again, no matter how introverted your heart may be, you may desire, every within all of us, there's the desire to belong, to belong to a family, to belong to a group, a club, a gang, a fraternity, a sorority, to belong to something that you and I, that we are constantly looking for our people. Why? Because the fall has fractured our sense of belonging. We are searching for acceptance and approval and inclusion. And the truth that God foreknew you, that means he preterned, predetermined to be in a relationship with you. The truth that God foreknew you and he chose you and he accepted you and he called you and he justified you. That means he made you acceptable. He called you when you weren't acceptable, but has justified you. He's made you acceptable and that one day he will take you home. And that's basically Romans 8, 29 through 30 right there. That's a very reassuring and freeing thing. That we know ultimately our approval and our, our belonging comes from the Lord. That frees us so that we no longer have to look for it in relationships. And oftentimes we go to these different relationships horizontally looking for what only the Lord can give us, which is a sense of belonging. 
sense of, of, of coming to him, of, of being known by him, of acceptance and approval and inclusion. And sometimes we suck the life out of relationships because that's what we're looking for in relationships. And we can become less stressed when we come to know that our acceptance and our belonging comes down vertically, not horizontally. Our um, kids' ministry, uh, the fourth and fifth graders, and also our students, right now they are um, working their way through the New City Catechism. And question number one in the New City Catechism is the question that starts off like this, what is our only hope in life and death? And I think I've already prayed this, but what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer to that question is this, that we are, that we, um, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to the Lord. What is your only hope? What other hope is out there? Where else are you gonna turn for hope? Our only hope, our only lasting hope, the only thing that gives us real hope is this truth that if we are the church, if we are part of Jesus, if we've come to have a trusting, um, saving faith in Christ, then this much is true, you belong to Jesus. And that is your only hope that you are not your own but you belong to him. Body and soul, you belong to him. What are the benefits of belonging to Jesus? Benefit number one is this. Jesus takes care of what belongs to him. That's basically what he just said in John 10. Jesus takes care of what belongs to him. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly losing stuff, right? We think about our stuff, our possessions, things that can belong to us. There's a number of things that can take those things from us, right? They can be lost, they can be stolen, they can be sold, they can be given away, they can deteriorate, they can be broken, they can be destroyed, but this much we can say, Jesus takes care of his stuff. What is his, it never gets lost, it never gets stolen, he never will sell it, he will never give it away. Jesus takes care of his stuff. We say this to give us assurance in our salvation. I give what is mine eternal life, Jesus says, that they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, he is greater and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Like picture that for just a second. Here you are, little old you, and you are in the midst of Jesus's hand, right? I need Nathan Goodrich to come up here. He's got like baseball mitt hands, right? And then there's another larger hand, if you will. The father's hand is holding you as well. Who's gonna pluck you from that? Nobody, not even you, if you're truly saved, if you're truly in Christ, not even you. Who's gonna lose you, pull you? Nobody, the father, Jesus is holding you and the father is holding you as well. Number one, Jesus takes care of what belongs to him. Jesus is taking care of you. What do we, we say, like, we got this saying right now where we say, like, hey, God's got that, right? I see that on, on Facebook a lot. Like, this is, this is my situation. And then people will post on there and say, hey, God's got that. And yes, maybe God's got that. But this much we can say, God's got you. What's better than got that is he's got you. No matter what may happen, he's got you. He's holding you. We just sang it. He will hold me fast. My daughter, Safira would sing, he is holding me fat. And that is true too. <laughs> Even if you get fat, he's still holding you. He's got big hands and he can hold you. But the saying is, the words is, the truth is, he is holding you fast. Oh, what a beautiful thought. 
Like right now, you may feel like you're coming apart. Your faith is failing. You may feel like, oh, everything is unraveling and it may be unraveling. It may be falling apart. And this much is true. He's holding you. And why is he holding you? Well, if you're the church, if you're part of his church, because you belong to him, that is why he's holding you. Number two, so first is Jesus takes care of what belongs to him. Number two is worth and value is determined by ownership and what one is willing to spend. Um, a few years ago, there was a uh, 1968 um, Fender uh, Stratocaster that was sold on the auction block for $2 million. Now you can go today and buy a Fender Stratocaster on the internet, you can buy a, a, a brand new Fender Stratocaster for less than $2,000. And the truth is, is like the, the, the components of that Stratocaster you can buy today for $2,000 is better than the Stratocaster built in 1968. Now I get it, vintage and all of that, that's true, but still the components and the pieces are better in the Stratocaster you could buy today from musician's friend or whoever else you may buy it from is better than that 1968 Stratocaster. Wasn't even that nice of one. And even if you found another vintage 1968 Stratocaster, probably the one that you would find and you would buy would be like $10,000 because of its age and not $2 million. Why was this particular Stratocaster worth $2 million? And here is why, because it belonged to Jimi Hendrix. The value of that Stratocaster was set by whose it was that owned it. And your value and your worth is determined by who owns you, whose you are, and what someone is willing to pay for it. That Stratocaster sold for $2 million because there was an executive from Microsoft who purchased it that was in the room during that and had $2 million to burn, right? Evidently his wife was at home and there he sat and thought, oh, I'm getting this mug, right? And wrote the check for it and purchased it. And the same thing is true for you, not only is not only is value and worth, where, what are you worth? What is the value of your soul, of your life? What is it worth? What's the value of it? Not only is ownership come into play, but also what someone is willing to pay for it. And Jesus gave his life to purchase you. Jesus came to possess you. I know the scripture says you were given and you were given. That's a true statement. I'm not saying that's not, that's not stated to be true, but to purchase you out of the world, a price had to be paid. And the price that was paid for you, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it wasn't perish, anything perishable such as silver and gold that has purchased you, but it was with Jesus' own precious blood. That was the price that he paid to ransom you and to call you his own. Number three, you belonging to Jesus means that you are not your own. Back to that New City Catechism. You are not your own. Paul picks up in, on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 through 20, when he's writing to the church at Corinth about the issue of sexual immorality. And this is what Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And here it is, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. What's the conclusion of that? Therefore, glorify God in your body. Again, in this context, he's talking about sexual purity. Because you belong to God and his Holy Spirit dwells in you, you must keep yourself sexually pure, is what he's saying there. But it also applies to every area of our lives. 
You don't own your own money. You don't own your own time. You don't own your own thought life. God owns it all. He gave you to his son and he's given you certain gifts and certain means so that you will use them to glorify him and to serve his redemptive purposes. Now let's do it. Second big point, the first one was that the church eternally belongs to God. Number two is the church rightly responds to the revelation of God. That's what we see here in this text. Look, what are the means by which God called you out of this world and called him to himself and gave him to you? Well, how did, what's the human responsibility in this? Well, here it's in the text. Look, Jesus says in verse number six, as he prays, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, and I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus says that he has revealed God's name to them. When Jesus says that he has revealed God's name to them, it isn't like he was like, it's Bob, right? It's not, that's not what he's saying, right? He's not saying, hey, I revealed God's name to you and it's, it's something else. No, what he means by when he says that he has revealed his name to you, manifesting your name is, means the sum of who he was. I have manifested God to them. That's what he said. I've manifested your divine nature and your divine attributes and your divine character to them. It's what Paul says in Colossians when he says the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus. That Jesus is the perfect revelation of God because he is God to the world. He's revealed He has revealed God to them. I have manifested my name. I've manifested yourself to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And they've responded to that revelation. They've responded to this by they have kept your word. Like, how did they know that Jesus was God? Like, not just the miracles. Ultimately, how they knew is because Jesus told them. Jesus proclaimed and taught them. He said, I am God. That's who I am. I'm the perfect revelation of God. It's my word that's, that's, that's at work. He's told them and they've kept his word. They believed his word. They've responded to that word that God has made. That Jesus declared the same word to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of that day. And when they heard Jesus saying, I am God, they said blasphemy and they murdered him. And Jesus said the same thing to his church, to his disciples. I am God and They heard him and they said, they fell to their knees and said, our Lord, our God, right? And they worshiped him. The world responds to how dare you claim to be God. And the church responds to Jesus's declaration that he is God with my Lord, my God. And we worship him. We glorify him. The church responds rightly to the revelation of God. What is the right, proper response to the revelation of God? So we talk about the revelation of God. God is revealing himself. In three ways, first in creation, Romans 1 talks about that, but that's not in salvation, but God is showing his divine nature and his divine attributes through revelation, I mean, through, through creation. You can look at creation and see that, hey, there's a creator, someone's made this. Now, there are those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but he says, nevertheless, man is without excuse. 
that we can look around and say like, hey, we can learn some things about God by seeing this. We can see that he's powerful and he's vast and he's orderly and all of these things. But second, in saving ways, God has revealed himself through Jesus because Jesus is God. And secondly, he's revealed himself to us through his word. That God is a God that says, hey, don't guess what I'm like. Hey, don't guess how to worship me. Hey, don't, don't guess at how to come into a right relationship about me. Let me tell you. And God has revealed himself to his word and the church responds rightly to the revelation of God, both in Jesus and well, in creation in Jesus and in his word. And what is that? What's here in the text? Look at the verbs in the text. Starting with verse number six, they have kept your word. Keeping, they've heeded, they've obeyed the word of the Lord. Number seven, for now they know that everything um, that you has been given, um, given me is from you. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you. They know the truth. That means to agree with God, that his word is revelation, his declaration is truth. Verse number eight, they received it, he says. It's to receive the word of God. They received Jesus. They included Jesus. It's to receive the revelation of God. Verse number eight is to believe that you sent me. That is what Jesus, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God, that he's sent from God. It's to believe that. But the proper response to the revelation of God is to obey. It's to come to know. It's to lay down your pride, to admit your ignorance, to, to declare your dependence. It's to receive Jesus, to receive his words, to receive his teaching. It's to believe in Jesus, to trust in him as God, as the only sinless savior who's come to ransom you. We talk about the gospel and the gospel is a declaration. It's a declaration of what Jesus has done. It's good news that Jesus has lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you deserved and has been bodily resurrected and ascended on high. That's the good news that Jesus had died for sinners, but implicit in that declaration is also a command. The command is to believe it, to receive it, to put your faith in it. The implication of the gospel is believe or else, believe or perish. It's not a suggestion, but it's a command from God. The command is to believe it, to receive it. That we talk about salvation being a gift, and it is. Grace is, is something that you cannot earn. It's unmerited. It is something that you must receive though. You cannot earn it. You cannot merit it, but it's something that you must receive. You must accept. You must believe upon it. And the truth is that's a very humbling thing. Even receiving grace is a very humbling thing. One of my favorite pastors, Ray Ortland, contemporary pastors, Ray Ortland in Nashville, he talks about the gospel being beneath so many people that most people, a lot of people, the world, it's like they're above the gospel. They're not humble enough to receive it. They're not been made humble to call upon the Lord for salvation, to submit to him. But let me ask you, have you and are you? Is the gospel too far beneath you? Can you admit that you're a sinner and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and submit to the Lordship of Christ. And some of you, you need to do that today in order to be saved. And some of you are saved and you just need to continue to do that. 
There's some of you that the Lord may be dealing with you in certain areas of your life. He's revealing his word. As you read his word, he's calling out and pointing to areas of your life. And he's saying, hey, what about that area? You need to submit to me in that area. Maybe it's areas of sexual immorality. Maybe it's your thought life. Maybe it's patterns. Maybe it's your mouth. That's where I am right now. I mean, I share this in part to say like, man, that's where the Lord's been dealing with me showing me as I read scripture, even on vacation of an area of my life that I wanna claim freedom over. And the Lord's saying, whoa, 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 here's the revealed word of God. Like what's your life look like in response to that? And Andy, are you, going to re- are you going to respond rightly to the revelation in this area of your life? Are you going to submit or are you too proud? And I ask you the same question. I just, misery likes company. I just want to hear like an amen, right? I'm there too. Like the Lord's, you know, I mean, what we want to do, I, I use this illustration often is you and I, we want to, we want to clean up our lives. Like, like you and I sometimes clean up a, a room, right? Like in, in, in my, in my house, in our kitchen, there is a, a junk drawer over in the corner and that junk drawer is so crammed full of junk. It used to be a big drawer. My wife was like, this is too much. And so now it's a little drawer, but we need a big drawer. And it's all the items that we don't wanna deal with that's out on the countertop that makes our lives look real messy. And so what we wanna do is what we wanna clean up is we wanna just take everything and shove it in that junk drawer and then shut it and be like out of sight, out of mind, right? Some of you got junk closets. Some of you got a garage, right? That's us too. We got a garage full of all of this junk and that's what we do with our lives. We clean up our lives in the same fashion. We try to put it all away. And then when Jesus shows up and we read his word, we wanna pretend like, hey, everything's okay and everything in my life is all right. And I've got all these things worked out. But let me tell you what Jesus does. He's like, hey, this looks pretty good. But he goes over and he pulls open that junk drawer and you go, what about this, right? Jesus flings open the garage door and goes, yeah, the house looks good and the lawn's all manicured, but what about this mess right here? Sometimes that's what the Lord does to us. He reveals through his word, the preaching of his word, the teaching of his word, the studying and the reading of his word. He will reveal areas of our lives that are incongruent with the declaration that he's made over us. That's next week. He's sanctifying us in the truth. Your word is truth. And he's calling us to to submit. He's calling us to repent. That's what we need is to repent, to agree with the Lord. Lastly, this, the church remains in the world to glorify Jesus. Now I'm going to gloss over this for this time because there's more here, but we'll get back to it next time uh, on next Sunday. But look at verse number 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, Jesus says, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. I'm going back to you. I'm going back to where I began. I'm gonna take my seat on my throne. It's rightfully mine, but while I'm gone, keep them, keep them, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That you and I, we have been left in this world that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. So why are we in the world? Namely to do this, to glorify Jesus. That's why he's left us in this world. We are to glorify and beautify Christ in the midst of this world. That you and I, we've been called to testify of Christ in this world. This is our mission. This is why we're left here. This is why you don't just 
receive Christ and then immediately taken up into heaven. That would be awesome. That would be beautiful, but that's not the way that it works. And why does it work like that? Because there are still more that Jesus wants to save. There's more that he wants to come to him. And how do we do it? He does it through his church, through the testimony and the work and the mission of his church. That's how he calls those of his to himself. The truth is, how do we glorify Jesus? Well, here, Jesus is glorified when you and I, when we live holy lives, sanctified lives, lives set apart for him and by him. Jesus is glorified when we display the fruit of the spirit. Jesus is glorified when you and I, when we trust him, especially in the midst of our trials and sufferings. Jesus is glorified when we are full of his joy, when Jesus's peace rules our hearts. Jesus is glorified when we tell others about here, when we share the good news. Jesus is glorified when we belong and we are invested in him and we serve his church. Jesus is glorified when you and I, when we love one another, when we sacrificially serve one another. Jesus is glorified by our marriages that image the gospel. He is glorified by the raising of our children to know him, to love him, to serve him. He is glorified when we work hard for his glory. Jesus is glorified in and out of our daily lives. Jesus is glorified in ordinary ways in our lives. Why have we been left here? We've been left in this world to glorify Jesus. And may we do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your divine revelation that is your word, that is your teaching. Lord, we bring all of our thoughts and all of our affections and all of our everything that we have, we bring it into submission of your declared word. Father, in this time, as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, I pray that we would not approach this table in a hurried fashion, but we would take our, that we would take our time, that we would think about the things that we've heard. Even this morning, we would think about the pattern of our lives we would be in tune with your spirit, that we would grieve not the work of the spirit, the spirit as he brings the, the word home, as he brings the word to bear in our hearts, that we'd be in tune with that work. And if there are areas in our lives that are in need of, of, of repentance, if there's areas of our lives where we need to ask for forgiveness, we need to confess sin, we need to, to declare that we agree with you that that is sinful and we need to repent and turn from those things and turn toward you, that you would highlight those things and give us the faith, oh, for grace to trust you more. Give us that kind of grace that we can trust you even in the places of, of, of sin where our hearts have just, where the tentacles of sin have grown around our hearts, uproot those places by the power of your spirit by the power of confession, by the power of repentance, by the power of obedience, all under the superintending work of your Holy Spirit that's been given to your church. It's come to cleanse and to purify your church. Cleanse me, Jesus. Restore me, Lord. Cleanse me and make me pure and make me whole. And I pray that would be our prayer as your church. There's areas that are obvious where we need to correct, maybe be quick to correct. And Lord, I pray for the people in this room who may have yet to place faith and trust, genuine faith and trust in you. 
They may have been baptized. They may be a member of a church somewhere, but they've never submitted and surrendered to, to your revealed revelation. They've never submitted to your lordship. They've never submitted to your word. I pray for them this morning, Lord, that you would give them grace and faith, the gift of faith to trust you this morning, that you would do what only you could do, that you would resurrect the dead even this morning. And Lord, as you do this work in our midst, we're gonna be quick to give you praise. May we be present with you. May we linger with you just a little while longer. Your work in us and through us may not be done. And so may we linger just a little while longer. Glorify yourself in this time. In your name we pray, amen.